Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. What a great song we have to sing as the church, as a bride waiting for her groom. We'll be a church ready for you. Great song for us to sing. Hey, it's good, really great to be back together here this week. You know, it was really interesting and encouraging to hear and to read some of the stories last week. We know that this isn't the church, this structure. We are the church. And uh, it was neat to see families and friends gathering and, and finding ways to worship together. But it's also, it's just great to be together again this week, to sing and to pray together and to open God's word together uh, as his bride. So welcome back, church. Uh, I missed being together with you last week. And uh, we have a, a really interesting opportunity today to look at God's word and to understand something that he's saying to each one of us, to me and to you, about a great and a terrible day. A great and a terrible day. I want you to think about that for a minute. You know, you come home from work, or you come home from school, and someone says, how was your day? And you might say, it was a great day. You might say it was a terrible day. Rarely would we say it was a great and a terrible day, you know? But we can think of those times when a day was great, you know? For Leaf fans, yesterday was a great day. For Bruins fans, yesterday was a terrible day. <laughs> you know, God must have a sense of humor. Uh, I don't know. I was driving here this morning. I just was wondering if, if God in his mercy and grace just chose... Pastor Rick was supposed to preach today. I was supposed to preach last week. So maybe God in his richness, his grace and mercy just knew that how difficult it would be to, uh, to be able to preach with these two young men here. Stand up for a second. How distracting it would have been for him <laughs> to focus on God's word. God is good, Pastor Rick. God is good. But you know... Um, yeah, we can think of great days. For me, I, I think of some great days in my life that I'm so thankful for. Um, great day when Deb said yes to me, that uh, she would choose to live the rest of her life as, as my partner in life, and that was a great day. Great day when she walked down the aisle and I was standing on the platform, and, and together before family and friends, we made a covenant commitment before the Lord that we'd spend the rest of our lives together. Great day. Great day. Uh, I remember that when my kids were born, Rachel and Katie and Ben, great day. And, and a couple summers ago, a grandson, great days. Uh, we've got terrible days as well, right? You can think of them, I'm sure. You've, a terrible day comes to mind. For me, um, you know, getting news from my mom that she had been diagnosed with leukemia and unless the Lord intervened, would only have six months terrible day. I remember being here at the church and an officer driving to the church to deliver the news that my brother, who lived in Vancouver, had unexpectedly passed away. Terrible day, right? We have great and we have terrible days. But today as we look at this book in the Bible, we see God telling us about a day that will be both great and terrible the book of Zephaniah. So I'm going to invite you to turn there 
with me, and I want you to keep this question in mind. How can a day be both great and terrible as we look at God's Word together? Zephaniah talks about the day of the Lord more than any other prophet. As we come to this book, we see some really dramatic and shocking language as he talks about God pouring out his wrath in holy anger. But in the midst of doom and gloom, we also see a message of hope. Hope offering the opportunity for anyone to exchange God's wrath for his blessing. So as we come to this book today, God has something to say to you, to me, about a great and a terrible day. Let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the time we've already been able to share together as, as your people, as your bride, as your body, as your church. And Lord, as we continue in worship with you, Lord, and now open up your word, I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear eyes to see only you and to hear your voice alone. So may my voice disappear and may your voice be the only one that's heard as we look at your word. May we honor and glorify you in every way. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles here, turn to, turn to the book of Zephaniah. Um, Zephaniah was one of the last prophetic books that was dealing with the situation before God's people were exiled out of the land, out of Jerusalem. Two weeks ago, we were dealing with the prophet Haggai, and the context there was God's people had been in exile, and some of them had been brought back, brought back out of exile to build, to rebuild the temple of God. That was Haggai. We've got to push the rewind button and go back before the exile, and that's the context of Zephaniah. Zephaniah, the situation was this. Um, Zephaniah prophesied during the reign of King Josiah. King Josiah reigned from about 640 B.C. to 609 B.C. And he came into power after 55 years of terrible and wicked leadership from King Manasseh and King Amon. King Amon was, uh, was uh, Josiah's father. And as the story is told in 2 Kings, we find out that as a young boy, King Josiah came into power because his father was assassinated. And yet God chose to use King Josiah at this time to do something remarkable. In fact, uh, this young man, we read about his testimony in 2 Kings 22, verse 2, where it says this, King Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and completely followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Isn't that a great tribute? I mean, moms and dads, wouldn't you want that to be said of your leadership, your role in the family? He didn't turn to the right or the left. She didn't turn to the right or the left. Grandparents, isn't that a, wouldn't that be the right kind of legacy we would pass on to our grandchildren? I mean, for every one of us, singles here, everyone here, wouldn't it be great when we are gone, you know, when people are gathering, you know, in Fellowship Hall and they're eating those little sandwiches, you know, the ones with the crusts cut off, or those little rolled up cream cheese things, oh, they're great. And the conversations in Fellowship Hall are, man, she was just an amazing servant of the Lord. She completely followed the ways of the Lord. 
oh, he was a great guy. He, he truly trusted the Lord, and he didn't turn to the right or to the left. Well, that was the testimony of King Josiah, that we pick up the story. And this prophet Zephaniah ministered in the days of King Josiah's reign. However, we find out this that all was still not well in the land. Even though King Josiah was, was offering spiritual reforms to the people, the conditions were still very, very serious. The political climate had changed. In fact, we'll put up this, this map that Pastor Rick used a couple weeks ago to show us the spread of the Assyrian domain. And we learned uh, several weeks ago that God used the Assyrians to try to purify his people, to, to bring oppression on the people of God and to help wake them up and turn their hearts back to God, and their reign spread. But as we pick up the story here in Zephaniah, we find out that Assyria's hold was starting, was starting his grip was starting to loosen, and they were being challenged by other nations, and we find out that they're losing control. And so as we pick up the story, Zephaniah provides a clear picture that the state of the land and the state of the nations around God's people was in decay, was in bad shape. Socially, morally, spiritually, the conditions were bad news. Really not good. So let's start off our journey together. Chapter 1 of Zephaniah, and as we look at the first verse, I want you to see two things. Zephaniah 1, chapter 1, the first verse, you'll see, first, you'll see something here. Zephaniah was the grandson of the good king Hezekiah. See it there? Zephaniah, son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. So he came from good stock. But more importantly than his lineage, which we're told here, I want you to see the first couple words that start the book off. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. The very first statement that's made here in this book is this. Make no mistake, this is God's word. This wasn't somebody else's word. This wasn't something that someone passed on to Zephaniah. This wasn't something that he made up himself. This was God's word. Given to Zephaniah, the great-grandson of the prophet or the king Hezekiah. So that's how we start. And then we encounter some of the most devastating words that start, I think, any book of the Bible. Zephaniah's words are dark and gloomy, terrible words. And it gives us a sense that there's no hope, that all is lost. Hey, would you read with me here? Chapter 1, verse 2. Look at this. The Lord says, this was the Lord's words, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the air and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Wow. Wow. Imagine for a second if you opened up your Facebook page today or you pulled up your Instagram account and that was the announcement that greeted you in the morning. Or you turn on the news, CTV or CBC or uh, CNN or Fox News for many of you, and you hear these devastating words, a report that shouts out an angry announcement from God that judgment is coming, a shocking statement that His righteous judgment is coming against sinful humanity. 
And as you read these words, you start to get this really sinking feeling in your gut. We are doomed. We are lost and without hope, for a terrible day is coming. How many of you have ever been lost before? That's good. I saw some guys' hands. Guys don't usually want to admit that. We are lost without hope. Uh, I was thinking uh, earlier this week about being lost, and I remember one time when my dad and my brother and I, uh, we went on a hike uh, up north. We, we used to rent this cottage up in Muskoka, a beautiful part of the country, and lots of you have enjoyed time up there with families. And we, we rented this place several years, and so we got to know some of the people. And, and a couple of the guys uh, who, who lived in the cottage um, a few da- doors down, they were telling us about this beautiful private little lake that was just kind of down the road and over the hill and around the bend. And they said, you guys should check out this, this lake. It's beautiful. So we packed a little lunch up, and we went down the road and over the hill and around the bend, and there was no lake. There was no path. There was no map. We were just told there was a beautiful lake up there. And shortly, we found ourselves just surrounded in forest, not knowing where we were. We had no map, no compass before the days of GPS. We were lost. Fortunately, in that cottage country, you can't go too far till you stumble into a road. And a couple hours later, we came out of the forest, and we were just a couple miles down the road from the cottage, and we walked home. No big deal. We, we were lost, but we didn't feel like we were without hope. I had the picture of another experience that just happened uh, last summer. I was out fishing in Lake Ontario. It was a beautiful morning day. Sun was shining. And then very quickly... The fog came in and set in around us, and you couldn't see. You could not see the front of the boat. The fog was so thick. No matter where you looked, you couldn't see where you were. I didn't know if I was pointed to Rochester, to Niagara Falls, to Kingston, or to Whitby. I had no idea. Praise the Lord, I had a GPS. And the GPS was able to point my way back to safe harbor. Well, here's the deal. God's people had lost their GPS. The nations had ignored the map that God had given them, pointing them in the direction of hope. And God is announcing, as we look at Zephaniah here, a great warning that judgment is coming. Extreme wrath is coming. Look with me at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1. See what God is going to do? He says, I'm going to sweep away everything. He says it three times. I'm going to sweep it all away, everything from the face of the earth. Man and beast, birds in the air, fish in the sea, and the idols. It's all going. This is very similar language to what we experienced in Genesis 6 when God tells Noah the regret that he has about how sinful his creation has become And back then, God says to Noah, I'm going to wipe the face of the earth, from the face of the earth, the human race that I've created. And with them, the animals and the birds and the creatures that move around the ground. It's very similar language to what Noah experienced. Praise God. Praise God. It continues in Genesis 6 to say this, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And of course, if you know the story, God offered hope. God offered salvation to the people, but it was only Noah and his family that responded to God's 
offer of hope and salvation. And so we see this similar kind of language here in the opening statement of Zephaniah. God is announcing that he's going to undo what he has created. It's like a reverse order of creation as you read that. Man and beast, birds and fish. God's evaluation is very clear and it seems final. Everyone is under the just and the sure judgment of God. The next thing I want us to notice is in verse 14. Jump down there for a minute. This judgment is not very far away. Look at this. Verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness, a day of a trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on the people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed and he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Friends, there's no way to sugarcoat this. There's no way to sanitize this, to wash this, and make it smell better or look better for our own kind of cultural preferences. No way to make us feel more comfortable or safe about this. This is bad news. This is a horrible message. This is truly truly terrible. Everyone is under the sure and just judgment of God. Did you catch the language in verse 18? Jump down there for a minute. It's, it's very dramatic. Blood poured out like dust. I mean, that's a picture where the ground is just covered. Just like dust is covered on the ground, blood is poured out on the ground. And people's flesh flung about like dung. If you don't know what dung is, Come to the farm. We have lots of it. It's not a pretty sight. But that's the picture that's going on here, right? This is horrible. It's dark. And I know some of you are probably sitting here today and saying, Steve, I came to church today for a pick-me-up. Can't you say something that'll feel a little bit better? I mean, come on. Give me something nice to hear. Give me something that'll make me feel more comfortable. Look, I'm sorry. God's word here is a serious wake-up call. There's no human way out here. There's no way for us to fix this problem on our own. We are done. We are without excuse. Everyone is going to experience the extreme wrath of God. Without God, there is no hope. And so the prophet goes on to explain to us the reason why God is angry, the reason why a just and holy God is angry. And we see this explanation back in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 4, where it says, I stretch my hand against Judah, against all who live in Jerusalem. I'll destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry hosts, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Moloch. Those who turn their back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord or inquire of him. 
Be silent before the sovereign Lord. The day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and he has consecrated those he has invited. And on the day of that sacrifice, and look, he now starts with the leadership, the officials and the princes. I will punish the officials and the king's sons and those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all those who avoid stepping on the thresholds. That was like a superstitious practice back then who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. And then he moves to the business world. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district, and all you merchants will be wiped out. All you who trade with silver will be destroyed. And then another audience here. In that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish those who are complacent who think, ah, the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Wealth will be plundered. Their houses will be demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. And so we see, we see the picture that the prophet is painting here, is that Judah and the surrounding nations are without excuse. They are sinful. We are sinful. And we, we read this list of accusations from God. Did you catch that again? Religious idolatry. Worshipping Baal. Baal was the Canaanite fertility god. Worshipping Baal. Worshipping the starry hosts. Worshipping Moloch, who was, who was the Amorite deity. And, and child sacrifice was involved in that whole pagan ritualism. And we read in these verses that, that God's people were doing that, but they were also trying to worship God at the same time. It was like, I'll oh, take God, but I'm going to add in all this other stuff. I'm going to have my bases covered. God plus. So the accusation is against God's people and the nations about religious adultery. Defection. Turning away from the Lord in verse 6. Verses 8 and 9, did you catch that? Conforming to the culture. Adopting the values and the principles of lost nations. Wealth, corruption, abuse, and complacency. The people that think, yeah, okay, I'll acknowledge that there's a God, but I'm not so sure he's active. I don't see him, I don't feel him, so whether he's around, either good or bad, it doesn't really matter. And God says, you're under my judgment. Complacency, no excuse. Religious adultery, no excuse. Defection, no excuse. Cultural conformity, no excuse. We don't have time, but if you flip over to, to chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, you see again these accusations coming out. Rebelliousness, disobedience, distrust, treachery, and violence in profane living. These were the accusations against God's people and the nations around. Yes, no excuse. The record of offense is damning. And now God goes on to make something really, really clear. Very clear to his people back then, and very clear to the nations, and very clear to us today. And it's this. He is sovereign and just. He rules with perfect justice. Despite our objections and our excuses, he is the Lord, and he is perfect. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. Pick it up with me there. Chapter 3, verse 5. 
The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice, and every new day, he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. I've destroyed the nations, their strongholds are demolished. I've left their streets deserted, with no one passing through. Their cities are laid waste, they are deserted and empty. Oh, Jerusalem, I thought, surely you will feel me, fear me and accept correction. Then her place of refuge would not have been destroyed, nor all my punishments would have come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all that they did. God had warned. There was no response, no repentance. And so God says this in verse 8. Therefore, wait for me declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up and testify. I've decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath upon them, all of my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Did you catch the themes here? Extreme wrath is coming. Judah, God's people, and the nations surrounding are sinful. Therefore, get ready. God sovereignly rules and judges. He's done no wrong. He's warned, but people continue to eagerly sin. So get ready. Get ready for consuming wrath and burning anger. Wow. God's made the announcement. He will judge. Something very important for us to understand about what this meant for the people of the day and what it still means for us. You see, as the prophets often did, Zephaniah was pointing to a near event that was going to happen, and that was the Babylon invasion of God's people. happened in 586, I believe. But he was also pointing towards a future event, a future apocalyptic event, when God would pour out His wrath. And it's really interesting, if you go back in chapter 2, Starting in verse 4, God says to his people, there's nowhere you can run. There's nowhere you can hide. And then he goes, takes them through. First of all, he starts on the west. You can try and run to the west. And he names the four Philistine cities. He's judging there. You can try to run to the east. Moab and the Amorites are there. Verse 8, you can try, verse 12, to the south, the Cushites in, this, in the Nile region. Verse 13, Assyria to the north, north, south, east, or west, doesn't matter where you try to run, judgment is coming. There is no place to run. There is no place of refuge, no place of safety for the coming wrath. And we know that God made good on that word to Judah. Jerusalem was destroyed shortly after this, and the Babylonians came in, and they attacked, and they invaded, and they took away many from the city, and then they tore down the walls of the temple, Solomon's great temple. And so there was an immediate day of the Lord. However, as we reflect on God's word to Zephaniah, we also see that this invasion of Babylon and all of its destruction and all of its despair and anguish was just a foreshadow of a future event. A future event that was coming where God would continue to pour out His wrath and His judgment. And so God shouted this warning. He shouted the warning back then, and He's still shouting it now. He's made His announcement that He is righteous and judgment is coming against sinful humanity. And so it seems like we're lost. 
and without hope because of this terrible day that's coming. A day like we've never seen before. A day of anguish and wailing, we just read. And no one can stand on their own to escape the fiery wrath of God. Wealth won't save you. Position won't save you. Coming to a Baptist church in an ice storm won't save you. Nothing will save you. Good works won't save you. For you see, God is holy, and in his holiness, he has to punish sin. He will bring justice and set all things right. And so this means this. I will stand before a holy God, and you will stand before a holy God, and there will be nothing for us to hide behind. And so the question for God's people was this. Are you listening to the warning? The question for the nations were, do you hear what God is saying right now? Are you listening? The question for each of us here today is the same. Do you hear what God's saying? He is holy. He is holy, and we are all corrupted by sin. Romans 3, 23 tells us this, all have sinned, me, you, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And yet our enemy has has sought from the very, very beginning to cast doubt on what God has said. You know when the serpent came to Eve? Well, did God really say you couldn't do that? Did God really say that you were going to die? And so that deception continues, and many buy into that deception, but God is making His Word very, very clear. Holiness and sin don't go together. And there will come a time when God judges and deals finally with sin. But here's the good news. Zephaniah's message didn't stop there. That was the extreme call of warning about judgment. But as we go on, in the midst of God describing His righteous and His holy anger about His sinful and rebellious creation, we see the merciful heart of God. It's revealed to us here. He makes it clear He's going to save a remnant, a people for Himself. And God Himself provides the only hope available to escape His wrath. And we discover this, that there is hope for us if we humbly repent before it's too late. God calls us to seek Him, to seek righteousness, and to seek humility, but we must call on His name before it's too late and worship and serve Him with a holy life. Look with me at chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, and you'll see this sense of urgency. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, gather, and he says it again, gather together, gather yourselves together, you shameful nations, and then look, three times he says the word before. Before the decree takes place, and that day passes like windblown chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Do you see the sense of urgency? And then it says this, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. There's the problem. By nature, we are not humble. By nature, we want to do it our way, not God's way. From the very beginning, God said, you can have everything in the garden, but not this. And in temptation's moment, the deceiver says, well, did God really mean you can't? Did God really say you're going to die? And so, we choose our own way. Just like Adam and Eve chose their own way, we as sinful creatures do the same thing, and yet God says, seek me. Seek me in humility, which means I've got to put myself aside. 
Self has to die, and it has to be God and God alone. And then he goes on in verse 3 to say, Seek the humble of the land, you humble of the land, do what he commands, seek righteousness, and seek humility, and perhaps you will be sheltered. So against the backdrop of this clear and certain call of judgment, God also demonstrates his great mercy, that sinners have the opportunity to throw themselves at the feet of God and say, Lord, be merciful to me, be merciful to me, a sinner. So God says that he will save and he calls us to seek him, to seek righteousness in humility now, now before it's too late. Do you hear the call? Do you, do you get this amazing offer of God's mercy to us? Call on his name and worship him only. Seek his refuge with meekness and humility and live a holy life. There's nowhere to run, there's nowhere to hide, you can't go north, south, east, or west, nowhere to turn except to Him. There's only one place of escape, only one place of escape, and that is God Himself. Turn to God and seek Him in humility, for God alone is the source of our salvation, salvation from His wrath against our sin. Mike Bullmore, as he reflects on this prophet, He makes a really powerful statement, and it's this, the glory of the gospel is this, the one from whom we need to be saved is the very one who saves us. Do you catch that? The glory of the gospel. The one from whom we need to be saved is the very one who saves us. The glory of the gospel. And when we hear that, we will have some kind of reaction. Some of us will want to run and hide from the anger of God, but there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. Some of us here today will just simply choose to ignore the message of God like nations and nations for thousands of years have done. Say, well, if God's there, I'm not really sure. Good or bad doesn't really matter. God's made it really, really clear. You are under judgment And of course, the response that God is calling for is that we would respond to His grace and respond to His mercy. God, in His mercy, provides the Lord Jesus Christ to all who would turn from sin and from self and simply call out to Jesus, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. 1 John 1, 9, great words of hope. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us, cleanse us, get rid of everything that separates us from Him, all of our unrighteousness. Romans 10 verse 9, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe it in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. The message of hope, message of salvation. Acts 4 verse 12, salvation is found in no one else For there is no other name, the name of Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It's good news. Great news. Great news if we will only respond to what God offers. God offers to me and to you. You know, today, if... if, If a fire broke out on stage here for a moment and the fire alarm went off and I said to you, everyone, safety is that way. 
the logical thing to do would be to go that way. And yet here's the problem. Here's my problem, and here's your problem. We don't want to go that way. We want to stay in our condition of self and sin and not listen to the urgency of God's call about His judgment that's coming, about what separates us from Him. And yet He's calling us, there is a way, and it's through my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you will only confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's the good news of the gospel. And so we ought to run to that salvation. We ought to run to that message. Great news. Great news. Here's the amazing thing, though, about Zephaniah. As we continue in the book, these themes that we've just been reflecting on, themes that, yes, we are sinful and therefore are to be judged, but God in His rich, great mercy provides a way of salvation. Great themes that are at the heart of the gospel, but we're reminded that there's more to this gospel message. Yes, we are hopelessly lost in sin. And God has provided himself the way of salvation from the horrible judgment that I deserve and the horrible judgment that you deserve. And in his sovereign and redemptive plan, he poured out his extreme wrath on not the one who owed it, but the one who took our place. Do you get that? Jesus Christ stepped up and said, I will take the wrath. And so he offered himself as the sacrifice. He took what we deserved, and God poured out his extreme wrath on his son to offer hope to lost people. However, that offer for grace and offer for hope is a transaction that requires an individual response before it's too late. Did you catch the urgency of that? Before, 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 we must call on the name of the Lord in repentance and true humility before it's too late. And then live lives that are obedient reflections of what God has done for us. Lives of worship to serve Him and Him alone. But we often forget that this gospel message has a goal in mind. Salvation is not just for our benefit. Yes, there's a huge benefit for us, but it's not just about that. It's got a trajectory. It's going somewhere. God's redemptive work is moving us to a great day, a great day when his people will be with him forever in glory and experience his amazing presence. And so the lyric, the lyric like strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow that becomes something really meaningful if we really understand what God is offering to us. That He's moving us towards a future experience that is so far beyond anything that we could ever, ever experience. Let me read you this. This is a quote by Jonathan Edwards. And it has some older language, but it really hits the point, I think. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of Him is our proper and it is the only happiness for which our souls can be truly satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better, and then he says these words, than the most pleasant accommodations. To be with God is, is so much better than what we could ever experience in this life. Better than, and then he goes on, fathers and mothers, 
better than husbands and wives or children or the company of all, our earthly friends. These are but shadows, shadows understanding that God is the substance and his enjoyment is the substance. These are but scattered beams and God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. You see, Zephaniah helps us to understand that salvation is not just an escape from God's judgment, but something to begin, an entrance to experience His glory and His presence now and forevermore. A great day is coming. A great day is coming when His people will be with Him to experience His joy and His passionate rejoicing. Look with me. Chapter 3. These are amazing words. Chapter 3, starting at verse 14. And our kids did a great job of helping us understand the heart of God as He looks at His people. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment, and He has turned back your enemy. Reason to rejoice. He's cleansed us, and He's dealt with Satan, the enemy of sin and death. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you, and never again will you fear any harm. His presence is with us. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion, and do not let your hands hang limp. When we're terrified in life, You've heard that phrase, paralyzed by fear. God's people have no reason to have their hands hanging limp. No fear. No condemnation. Instead, we are people who can raise our hands before the Lord. Hands that have been cleansed and washed by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And enjoy the presence of God. Continuing on, He will, the Lord is with you. He will take delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Wow, God sings. Yes, God sings. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame, and I will gather the exiles. I'll give them praise and honor in the very land where they suffered shame. And at that time, I will gather you, and at that time, I will bring you home. And look what the Lord is promising his people. I will give you honor and praise amongst all the peoples of the earth. Do you see the intensity of God's joy? You know, we come to a book like Zephaniah, we feel, wow, this is really heavy stuff. Look at the extreme language that's here. Judgment, wrath, doom. But God in His mercy and grace doesn't leave it there. He offers hope. And then he embraces his people with such amazing, passionate joy. Do you you get that? Isaiah 62 verse 5 says this, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will God rejoice over you. One of the things I've had the privilege of doing as a pastor here for you is is marrying some people, officiating at at weddings. And it's always just an amazing moment when you're standing here with a groom, who's always nervous, right? And his men, and he's nervous, but then the door opens, and the groom melts in joy to see his bride coming down to enter into a lifelong relationship. That's the picture. We sang it earlier. 
We sang it early. We'll be a church waiting for you as a bride, waiting for her groom. And this is the picture of the joy that God has, just like that groom is anticipating his bride coming. God is anticipating his bride, which is his church, us, if we have responded to the message of truth. That's the kind of joy So this redemptive story is moving us to a point, a point that is not today, but a point that is also full of hope to say this, we will experience God and his glory and his presence, and it will be the most amazing experience we have ever, ever had. And so we sing. God's people need to sing. We need to shake off the limp hands, and we need to raise our voices knowing that God himself is singing over his bride, and we need to sing, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Church today, there will be people here who've heard these words of judgment, but they've just let them go. Not for me. I'm not sure God's really active. There are people here today who think that the acts that they are doing, going to church, doing their very best, worshiping God, but worshiping priorities of life, worshiping family, worshiping career, worshiping other religions. God plus is going to work. God's made it really clear. The only hope is to respond to his mercy and grace. And then as you have responded to his mercy and grace and become part of his bride, we need to experience the amazing joy, the passionate joy that Christ has for his church and respond back to him. I'm going to invite the team to come and lead us as we remember that Jesus Christ offered the way for us the way away from experiencing God's wrath and the way to experiencing his presence forever. And because what Jesus Christ has done, he has conquered sin and death. For he wears the victor's crown. Let's stand and sing to our amazing God as we think about what he has done for us. Praise the Lord for the gift of Jesus. He has overcome. But every high thing must come down. What's your high thing? My high thing is myself. Sin of self keeps us from the Lord. Bow your heads with me. I would hate for anyone to be here today and have heard the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and heard the message of what God has to do to deal with sin, but fail to know what to do to receive His mercy. If that's you today, our leadership team will be here at the front. Come, and we would love nothing better to do than to continue to point you to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has overcome sin and death on our behalf. If you've already made that decision, Maybe the message, the takeaway is, am I doing a God plus kind of thing?
What are the other things that have to come down in my life that are getting in the way of me fully serving and worshiping God and God alone? And hey, if that's, if that's good with you, maybe here's the third possible application is, for God's bride, since we know the hope, and yet we know the incredible wrath that's coming, by God's Spirit can we choose to find our voice again, to find our voice in worship and praise, to find our voice in sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Would you look, with, look up with me? Our benediction from Thessalonians chapter 5, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen. God bless you.